You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and a warm welcome to the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. My name is Stephanie Esk. I work as program manager for the Global Politics and Security Program here at UI. Um, I'm delighted to see all of you here to take part of the seminar, the Climate Change and Security Nexus, um, in cooperation with the Swedish Defence University. Um, this seminar will be recorded and published on our um, uh, channel, the UI podcast on SoundCloud, as well as on our website. And if you wish to tweet, please use the hashtag UI event. Um, I would like to introduce today's panel. Um, to my right, Brigadier General uh, Stephen Cheney, um, CEO of the American Security Project and member of US Department of Foreign Affairs Policy Board. And uh, Brigadier Cheney has over 30 years experience as a Marine. And to his right, Linnea Engström, member of European Parliament for the Greens. And Linnea Engström is vice chair of the Fisheries Committee, member of Environment and Gender Equality Committee. To her right, Professor Robert Ignell, head of the Department of Security, Strategy and Leadership here at the Swedish Defence University. And last but not least, Dr. Gunilla Reichel. She is the head of the Global Politics and Security Programme and Senior Research Fellow here at UI, and she will moderate today's seminar. seminar. With that, I would like to welcome the panel with a big applaud. Thank you. Thank you and welcome everyone and welcome to the panel. It's a great pleasure to have you here and uh, I'm really looking forward to this important discussion we will have. Um, before we dive into it, I would like to start by recalling the situation we, we see today uh, when it comes to climate change. And uh, for a long time, climate change and the risk of climate change has been, um, and its impact on peace and security has been considered as, as a future risk, that something is going to happen to our sh children and grandchildren. Uh, but if we look at the situation today in the world, um, it is quite obvious that it's not only about the future, it is a risk of the present. Uh, for instance, the global average surface temperature in 2017, last year, it was approximately 1.1 degrees above the pre-industrial era. And 2017 was also a year of climatic extremes. Uh, both sudden shocks, such as hurricanes, floods, tropical storms in many parts of the world, in, in Europe and North America, but also on slower changes, such as droughts, desertification, um, that pushed thousands towards extreme hunger in the Sahel, for example. So the signs and the effects of global warming are already appearing now, and it's getting more critical. So we're talking about challenges that are aggravated or even caused by climate change. And what they look like and what to do about them is what we're going to talk about today with the panel. Uh, with that, I'd love to start us in with the security implication of climate change. And uh, I turn to Stephen and uh, ask how, how would you say that climate and 
climate change and security interact? And how could we understand the interlinkages between the areas? Well, Ghani, I can talk about this question for about the next two hours, but I'll try to, uh, as King Henry VIII said to many of his wives, I won't keep you very long. Um, let me first say up front, uh, thank you to the Institute and the University for having me over here. I'm just delighted. This is my first time in Sweden, and I'm just ecstatic to be not in Washington, D.C., um, with one exception, and I have Sweden to thank for it. Uh, last night, the Washington Caps won their third game. If they win one more, they win the Stanley Cup for the first time in the finals in 45 years that I've been following that team, and they have three Swedish players. Uh, Andre Burakowski, Nicholas Backstrom, and Christian Juice. So if you're not a hockey fan, these are three of the best hockey players in the world, and they came from Sweden. So I thank you very much for that. Watch Thursday to see if they win the Stanley Cup, in which only one team has not lost it who has won three games in 45 years. So I hope they can win. Um, security and climate change. And this has been a topic of my organization for since its inception in 2006. And you might say, what does a military guy care about climate change? And why are you up here talking about this issue? And that was the same question that was asked in 2005, 2006, by then a guy named John Kerry. And he came off the 2004 election, not very happy that he did not get elected. But one of the issues he would talk about would be climate change. And often happened, he would get painted as, in the United States, the left-wing liberal that he is and people would not listen to him and his precepts are talking about the threat of climate change. So he said, maybe I can put together a group and have five, six, or maybe eight, what we call flag officers, three and four star generals and admirals recently retired who can talk about the threat that climate change posed, not just to our national security, but security worldwide and why they have to defend against it. And so he picked Two from each service, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine. We still have many of those on our current board. I was pleased to join it shortly thereafter. And the intent behind this was to take the politics out of the issue. We were not Republican or Democrat. Our organization is what we call a 501c3 nonprofit. Uh, we don't endorse a candidate or a party, but we will attack a policy. And one of these policies has been the approach of incumbent administrations to climate change. Now, climate change in the United States really became a topical issue probably early on in the Bush 43 administration. And they started writing it into the national security strategy and national defense strategy uh, put out by the Department of Defense and by the National Security Council. And in there, they addressed the fact that long term, there are several conflicts that you can draw the string that are either caused or enhanced by climate change. And I break it down into two separate sections, strategic and tactical. Now, from the tactical perspective, our bases and stations in the United States that are on the coast and several that are overseas are literally going underwater. Uh, the prime example, perhaps, is the largest naval base in the world at Norfolk, uh, which has already seen sea level rise consume several of their piers. So they've had to raise the level of all their piers. They've shut down the base now over a dozen plus times a year because it's been flooded by rising seawaters and they have a double problem. The land is sinking simultaneously. Uh, and when I say flooded, you cannot get on base, they cannot get to the ships. So they, they have a, a big problem here, what we call adapting to climate change. I used to command the military base at Paris Island, South Carolina. 
When I commanded it in 1999, my predecessor said, your biggest concern is going to be hurricanes. They hadn't had a hurricane in 40 years, so I wasn't all that concerned. But I will say the military is pretty good about planning. So when somebody said, you better plan for evacuating 10,000 people off this island if you have a Category 5 hurricane, uh, you better be ready. 60 days later, Hurricane Floyd threatened the island with 21-foot storm surge. We moved 10,000 people into uh, Albany, Georgia. Uh, fortunately, we weren't hit that badly, but that particular hurricane went to North Carolina and did tremendous damage to North Carolina. First time in 40 years that we've had a Category 5 come near. It's happened now twice since. So catastrophic weather now is occurring on a much more frequent basis, and those who command bases and stations have to be concerned about that. Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean is going underwater. We have a Marine Brigade's worth of equipment there. It's going to have to be moved sometime in the next 20 years. Um, in terms of catastrophic weather, the former commander of Pacific Command, and the United States divides the world into six geographic areas, and one of the biggest is Pacific Command. The former Pacific Command commander, Admiral Locklear, said long-term the number one threat that he has to worry about in his AOR is climate change. He had just come through Typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines in 2013, highest recorded wind velocity of any typhoon or hurricane in history, 8,000 people killed. We sent 12,000 soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines to the Philippines to rescue those people. Now, you might say, well, why did we do that? It was a humanitarian gesture, of course. Uh, but when you look at the size of the United States military and how our, our ability to deploy and that logistical movement, we're, we're perhaps the only military that could do that in the world. It's becoming more frequent. I'm going to switch now, if that's what I call the tactical side, to the strategic side. Now, the U.S. military is pretty good about planning for conflict, and they have planners in each one of the combatant commands and certainly in the Pentagon, and they look at climate change as a threat multiplier or an accelerant to instability. And I will walk just very quickly around the world on some poignant examples here, and I'll, I'll start with Lake Chad uh, in Niger in Nigeria, which has lost 90% of its water in the last 30 years. And what's happened there is you've got a migration change. The people who used to subsist on that water and fish there had to move, and others became to take advantage of that instability, particularly Boko Haram, which I'm sure you're familiar with. They now are discovering an ISIS footprint in that same part of the world as those people shift and move. Now, the Sahel is predicted that an ambient temperature might go as high as 50 degrees centigrade here in the next 20 years. People can't live at that temperature, so they're going to move. So the, one of the lines I use, and you should be concerned here in Sweden about it, is you think you have a migration problem now caused by what's going on in the Middle East. Wait 20 years when you've got 20 or 30 million people who have to move, and they're not going to South Africa. They're going the other way. They're going north. You are going to have a migration problem. Let me shift a little bit farther to the east, talk about Syria and the Arab Spring. I won't claim that the Arab Spring was caused by climate change, but I will tell you it was a spark that helped participate in it. It started with the wheat, with the forest fires and the wheat crops in Russia in 2010. And we have video of Putin embargoing wheat in 2010 because he couldn't feed his own people in Russia. Stopped the wheat exports to the Middle East, of course, that is the number one staple is bread there. The prices of, of wheat skyrocketed. That contributed to the economic disparity that you saw in Cairo and in Tunisia. That contributed to the riots. It contributed to the Arab Spring. Let me move a little bit farther east to Syria. Worst drought in their history, 2006-2011. 
about two million people, farmers, had to move because they had no welfare and they couldn't feed themselves. The United States, you may be familiar, we had a congressman who said he didn't know where Aleppo was. About a million of them moved to Aleppo, and we now, you remember what happened in Aleppo. Uh, huge unemployment, uh, huge food shortages, huge targets for Assad, he barabombed his people, and another huge target for ISIS, which took advantage of that instability. And the last example I'm going to use on the strategic side is Bangladesh. One and a half foot level of sea level rise, they're going to lose 20% of their land mass, and they predict a minimum, a minimum of 20 million migration refugees. The problem in Bangladesh is, where are they going to put them? And they're not going to India. If you've seen the border between India and Bangladesh, it's much like the Berlin Wall. They will shoot you if you cross it. They're not going there. They're not going to Myanmar. In fact, they have the opposite problem there. The Rohingyas are going from Myanmar into Bangladesh. And the prime minister of Bangladesh declared it a national emergency here a couple of months back. And the problem here, of course, is it's going to happen. We cannot stop that level of sea rise that's going to happen in the next 10 to 20 years. So long term, you can understand why the military has to plan for the crisis that's going to be caused by climate change and how it's a threat uh, to instability and an accelerant. So that's why, that's my answer, Gunia, about why the military is concerned about climate change. Thank you. <laughs> uh, as, uh, <laughs> yeah. I think uh, it's very interesting to, to listen to you and hear about the impacts. And I think it also shows that, um, I mean, we already see the effects here in our countries and our part of the world, but it is the most uh, vulnerable, marginalized communities that are hit the worst in the world. And I think in this context, climate justice reminds us about more ethical and political considerations of, of this problematic. So I'm, I'm turning to Linnea, who is working with these issues. And uh, in your work, you, you address the connections between climate change uh, and security, and in particular, the links between uh, climate justice, water, fisheries, and gender. And I wonder if you could explain to us why is it important and uh, why should we think about these issues and how? Yes, okay. Uh, thank you, Gunilla. And I really want to start off by, by thanking the Institute for Foreign Affairs and the uh, Swedish uh, college, defense college, yes, that's, a, that's the English term, for hosting this very this panel and for Stephen who uh, came all the way from, from the US. I'm, of, uh, of course, extremely delighted to be here today and uh, to discuss these uh, important topics with you. Um, I really got an even deeper grasp of these issues uh, when I was working, when I've been working in the European Parliament. Uh, I was the rapporteur for the management of the EU external fishing fleet. So uh, I negotiated that legislation. And then also I've done a report, the first ever in the EU system on climate justice. Now we've been talking about this for decades, but still that's where we are. In 2018, we have the first report really addressing climate justice and adaptation measures that needs to be taken into account when we talk about climate change. So that's maybe my start off point. Um, so I would say that climate justice really takes into account the fact that climate change is very unjust. It hits the poor and the most vulnerable the hardest. Um, and that's also true actually for rich countries. So if we look at uh, the US after Hurricane Katrina, two years after uh, 
80% of single mothers hadn't been able to return to their homes. So it's really not only about development context, but really about the rich countries as well. Um, so the connection with water and fisheries, I mean, that's, that's my main um, field of work right now. So the EU has several partnership agreements with countries um, in West Africa, for example, where uh, I've, been uh, I've, I've been visiting several times. Uh, I think 10, 12 years ago, it was very, very obvious that the overfishing led to migration. Uh, very, very clearly that people moved due to climate change, maybe agricultural land disappeared and they moved into fisheries. And then when the waters get overfished, you take the boat to Europe, basically. So the situation has changed. Um, we can talk about the measures that has been taken and are taken by the EU to sort of handle this, uh, which, which is of course totally inadequate. But um, I think Coming back to what uh, General Cheney said, uh, we see that the migration flows really has shifted towards Nigeria instead. And then coming to the, uh, the, um, the situation in Nigeria, which I think is really, really uh, appalling right now. Uh, more and more people are fleeing right now because of losing income, because of agricultural land and fisheries disappearing. Um, so that's because of the extreme rapid dehydration of the Lake Chad. Um, so as people lose their resources, and of course they will lose them uh, all over, um, terrorist groups like Boko Haram stand on very fertile ground. That's of course the, the link to security. Uh, so they offer employment, especially to young men, uh, which is of course a very short term way of, of sustaining yourself. Uh, the same critical development where shortages contributes to conflicts within and beyond national borders we can see in Somalia, Armenia, Turkey, Syria, Iraq, India, China, Laos and Bolivia right now. I mean it's really, I really appreciate that you're saying that it's happening right now. So um, I think, I don't know how much time I have right now but uh, yeah, three minutes. Yes, of course. I mean, maybe to say something um, on the really the need for climate justice and, and the gender perspective. I think that's my that's really my field of, of expertise. So we can also see, of course, that the poorest and the most vulnerable are hit the worst. And that's usually women and children in most countries. So even in rich countries, as I said, those groups are most uh, badly hit. So, uh, for example, the UN has shown that women and children are 14 times more vulnerable after a climate disaster. And that's because of the discrimination, uh, all the way that societies are built today. Um, so, um, we can see forced migration, we can see even trafficking in human beings after climate disasters, which is really, really affecting these groups. So. Um, I mean, we will come into the, uh, the really the answers after, after this round, but I think extremely little resources are still put into adaptation needs. And it's, I mean, I would say almost invisible in the discussion that we have uh, in the European Parliament. And I mean, of course, I'm all in for mitigation. I mean, we, we rapidly have to 
stop climate change and decrease all the carbon dioxide that we are emitting to the atmosphere. But this is happening right now. So we really need to protect also the human rights of those most vulnerable people. Uh, because otherwise, I mean, we, we already see where they're ending up. They're ending up in the slave camps in Libya. That's where they're going. So, uh, yeah, to start off, yeah. Thank you, Tudlini Asfam. It's a very important uh, perspective on, on the issue, and we will uh, talk about the EU further on. Uh, but before that, uh, I've, I've worked with global environmental politics and governance for many years, and I was uh, I, I encountered climate or environmental security around 2005, and I was a bit skeptical about the agenda of security and combining security and environmental issues, because it's always about how you frame a threat. So now I'm turning to Robert to ask him, as a security expert, what is your take on, on climate change and security? And how could we think about like human security is, of course, in there. Uh, the other speakers have touched about, um, upon it. Uh, but also, you have issues of um, national or traditional security that is very vivid in, in the climate discussion. So I would ask you to uh, elaborate on that a bit. Thank you so much. I'll do my best. And it's, it's wonderful to be here, uh, to be part of this conversation. Um, the linkages you talk about are at first sight so obvious. The, the consequences of climate change, I'm not, I'm not even saying potential consequences, because we know they will be absolutely disastrous over the next few decades, even if we do our very, very best here and now to mitigate climate change. It will be a disaster. Uh, and so many people around the world will have to move, they will die, uh, and it'll quite often probably happen on our doorstep. Uh, so, so there's no questioning that this is a security issue in the, in, in the sense people will die and it will be horrible and, and there are potential shortages that might lead to war, etc., etc. Um, but at the same time, uh, do we want to go there and call this a threat? Um, do we want to give it that agency, uh, or are we missing the point? So I have, I have two problems uh, that I, I sense that you picked up as well. The first one is the fact that it, it seems to be too hard to grasp the magnitude of this challenge. It becomes a very large strategic discussion about policy, uh, global agenda affairs, that we, we just don't know how to understand it. Actually, I was in, in Auschwitz this week with a military program, and it was the same feeling. This is too big to grasp. The numbers are beyond me. I don't understand. And then you hear the little stories about individuals that you can connect to, and suddenly it starts to make sense uh, beyond these enor the enormous uh, magnitude of, of climate change as an issue and, and the consequences of it. So that, that's one point. Um, and the other one is security as a threat, then. Uh, a few years ago, the Pentagon came out with a report where they really came out and said uh, that climate change is uh, a threat to national security. And mo most people uh, celebrated this and thought, finally, they've realized the importance of this issue. But I have, I have two problems with this. One is how we understand security, and the other one is the national aspect of it. 
first of all, the security aspect, we tend to, when we think about security, we tend to think about national security and external threats. Uh, and we have to deal with them uh, in, in, in emergency terms as a nation uh, and with extreme measures. Uh, that's called securitization for those of you uh, who have studied uh, political science and IR theory. That new, agenda, new issues come to the security issue agenda and, and, and becomes, become securitized. Um, that's no, not always a good thing, because when we think of it as a national security issue, we also immediately tend to think of the most usual uh, or useful instrument, the military. And I think we can all agree upon the fact that the US military, enormously powerful and mighty, will not be the ones who will mitigate climate change or stop it, or, whether it's at the border or globally. Uh, so we need different instruments. So if we start militarizing climate security, we might cause more problems than solutions. And, and, and we might, I say. It doesn't necessarily have to go there. And the other one is then the national aspect of it, that it's a national security. We, I, I already said that I buy the fact that it's a security issue, yes. But is it a national one? Uh, and again, if we think about this in national terms, as we did think about migration in national terms suddenly, we will see this completely illogical turn where issues are global, the challenges are global, but we are at the same time nationalizing security. So we are thinking about borders, about national competencies and expertise uh, and, and agencies to deal with it. And no nation, however powerful, will be able to deal with these challenges on their own. So to think about them in national security terms, I think is again leading us in the wrong direction. Uh, it's not a national security issue, it's a, it's a global one. Or, as I would like to say then, it's a human security issue and not a national security issue. And, and I work on human security because it, it helps me get away from these traps of traditional security mindsets and the national security issue. Uh, there are many different concepts. I also work on, on gender approaches to do the same thing, to challenge myself and traditional notions of security. And why is human security helpful to me? Well, first of all, it's a bottom-up approach. It's not about strategists defining the real challenges. It's about asking people. Uh, so rather than defining what, what your challenges are, I would ask you, what are you concerned about in your everyday life? What are your biggest threats in your, in, your, in your daily lives? And that would give me a pretty different picture than the nationally defined security threats. And the same thing if I went to the, the Eastern Congo and asked a, a single mother, what are your greatest security concerns? We would, as Western strategists, probably say sexual violence has to be number one in that context. And they would answer, my children's education because they know that there is no way out of that hellhole for their children unless they are educated. They will have the exact same life as they have unless they are educated. So they, they've got it, and we don't. And that's why I think we should always ask the people, and we should see things from their perspective. And then suddenly, climate change is not about what happens in Paris, it's about what happens on the ground. And that's where we can start having this discussion about mitigation versus adaptation, <laughs> et cetera. Because we cannot 
uh, let go of the fact that this is going to have an enormous impact on people everywhere. Uh, but if we start thinking about it in terms of national security, I think that impact will be, might be even worse. Because that's when we will start closing border, when we will start uh, having sort of clean areas and dumping areas, etc., in order to achieve uh, some kind of change. Um, I think that might be a, a good start. And then we'll come to the solutions in, in a few minutes, which is when it gets really interesting. <laughs> Thank you very much. Oh, Yeah, it's, uh, it's a very, thank you for providing this uh, nuanced picture and thank you all of you for outlining how we could view the linkages between climate, uh, climate change and security and, and provide this knowledge that I think is, is very much needed. And I mean, it's a complex issue and there are no um, easy answers to this. I know we, we see that uh, we have states, international organizations, military, NGOs, uh, others are working on, with these issues and are acknowledging the problem. But the question is how much action is happening and uh, what are they doing? So turning the discussion to, to action and to the actors in this, I would like to start with Stephen and ask about the military. Sure. Um, and what, what demands uh, climate change put on the military and what kind of capacities there are? Sure, Gunea, thank you. Um, Robert, in, in kind of a little bit of a response to your comments here, I'm not looking to militarize climate change. I'm looking to get the message across that it's occurring. And um, one of the problems we have in the United States is what we call shooting the messenger. And uh, when you get the Sierra Club um, or Greenpeace uh, or Al Gore, you mentioned those three entities to a fair proportion of America and uh, they just immediately react viscerally to it and think, you know, these left-wing, like I mentioned, liberals with Kerry, they're not going to listen to the message. Now, I'm not going to brag about the United States military, but I will tell you the number one res most respected institution in the country is the military. And a lot of the reason for that is it's non-political. I mean, they are outlawed. They out if you're active duty, by law, you cannot participate in political activities. Um, so if they're concerned about long-term what climate change is going to impact our nation's security. And of course, you rightly point out, it's not just our nation's security. It's your security. It's a worldwide security problem. Uh, that was one of the points that the American Security Project was founded, was to get us to get out there. And we took recently retired people who had the time and, and the seniority. And that's, that's another point to this. You spend 30 or 40 years growing up in the military and, and going around the world, and I've been stationed like all of us have uh, in Asia, in the Middle East. Uh, you've, you've seen conflict and you understand what it's about. Um, that's where climate change comes into the planning process. So I wasn't looking to, to militarize, per se, uh, climate security or climate change. Now, in terms, Guinea, of, of what are we doing, um, and, and this gets into the adaptation and mitigation problem that uh, Linnea and I were talking about earlier. Um, the military is about long-term planning in the United States, and all the militaries are. They, they've got to predict where conflict is going to occur and then tailor their response to that. And, and I'm glad you mentioned uh, Katrina, and then we had Superstorm Sandy. Uh, and then, of course, last year we had uh, Rita and Maria 
hurricanes, which, by the way, Puerto Rico has still got tens of thousands of people without power. The United States territory is still with, just not that far from the continental United States without power. We still haven't been able to fix that. Each one of those catastrophic events had a military response to it. And you're going, well, I don't understand that. Well, Katrina was so bad, they took a good friend of mine, uh, an ad a Coast Guard Admiral, Thad Allen, and put him in charge of the response to Katrina because the, uh, then Homeland Security wasn't able to, to handle the response, uh, or FEMA. Uh, same thing occurred with Sandy. Soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines were, were essentially the first responders to all those. A and one of the long-term problems with this is it costs money. And somebody is funding that. So now you've got commanders that are looking at their long-term budgets, short and long-term, saying, if we're going to have more catastrophic weather, how are we going to pay for the response to do this? And now you, when you look at all the combatant commanders, and I mentioned Pacific Command, they, they actually budget for catastrophic weather response, and they actually practice it, not just with United States forces, but with international forces as well. So that's part of the, the adaptation side of the house. And the other adaptation side, of course, is going to have to move bases and stations somewhere uh, because you're going to lose bases and stations. Now, on the mitigation side, and, and Linnea and I talked about this earlier as well. Um, the number one burner of fossil fuels in the United States and number single entity and maybe the world is the US Department of Defense. And you think, how can that be? Well, they have tens of thousands of aircraft and they burn fossil fuels. Uh, would it not, not be nice to get them off burning fossil fuels and contributing CO2 to the atmosphere? We know what causes climate change. Now, I'm not a scientist and I have done many lectures with a meteorologist, a good friend of mine named Admiral Dave Titley, who can talk to science days and all day long. Uh, but when you look at the weather and you look at the heating of the atmosphere, particularly over the last 10 years, uh, we know that CO2 in the atmosphere is contributing to warming the atmosphere that's causing climate change, and we've got to stop CO2 emissions. So I don't have the answer to that necessarily, except to say we're an all-the-above organization. Anything you can do to limit CO2 emissions works whether it's from automobiles or burning fossil fuels or, or power generation, alternative fuels, we're, we're in favor of all of those. Long, long answer to your question. <laughs> uh, yeah, and another part on maybe not the military, but at least sort of security or military operations is peace building and peacekeeping. And uh, I was thinking if, Robert, if you could uh, talk a bit about the impact, the climate change impact on peacekeeping, um, how it hangs together. Well, um, th there are so many levels to this. Uh, one is obviously that, as Stephen rightly pointed out, the military is quite often the one tool that, that can deal with this. I re remember another example, uh, the Indian Ocean Tsunami where the Indian Navy was absolutely instrumental in, in dealing with many of the challenges uh, in, in Sri Lanka, for example. Uh, they were the only ones who had the capacity to respond in that absolute disaster. And it's often like that, uh, which means it's, a, it's an incredibly important resource. And when it comes to the, the tool of peacekeeping, a uh, hotly contested one, obviously, uh, but it, it might then have both a humanitarian disaster relief uh, responsibility, as well as uh, a, a prevention responsibility in, in climate-affected areas or in disaster areas in order to uh, provide 
peace and stability where there, it's, it's highly likely that violence will erupt due to shortages of, of resources or climate disasters that, that will impact a lot of people's lives. Uh, so, so I think this will be a, a really useful tool to think about it that way. Unfortunately, and, and this is really your area about global governance and, and, uh, and the institution involved, um, the tool of peacekeeping, especially UN peacekeeping, is, is uh, led by the UN Security Council or, or will have to be invited by the affected states. Uh, and that means that organization will have to think about climate issues, about uh, humanitarian disasters in security terms. Slightly contradicting what I said just earlier now, um, but then to be able to launch this instrument for completely different reasons than we were used to. Um, they have been very reluctant to even think about this tool in, in preventive terms so far. It, it's a very reactive council, uh, which means that it's, it's a very useful instrument, but usually locked behind political doors uh, that, that we can't open at this moment. And I do think uh, that the military has a, a role in, in in these issues, but also in, in, in terms of national security and stabilization internationally. Uh, and that means it's going to be there and it's going to have disproportionate amount of resources for a tool used so seldomly. Uh, and that means we, we should think about creative ways of, of using it uh, when it's really, really needed. And I think this, this is, will be one of the nuts to crack at, at, at the, I think, the tactical level. Uh, um, adaptation that you talked about, Stephen. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, you're right. The UN Security Council is um, it's an interesting institution, organization, or actor in, in, this, uh, uh, in this area. I think uh, it was in 2007 uh, the UN Security Council brought up uh, climate, climate change and security. And, um, uh, but it has been quite a slow process, and there's a debate on whether it should be discussed in the council or not. And there's a lot of problems with that, of course. Um, but also another one of those big institutions or organizations is the EU, the European Union, mm. who has been a leading actor in, in international climate cooperation for many years. And uh, all, although it's been sort of declining leadership, maybe perhaps <laughs> since 2008, but, but still it's something that the EU is working on uh, and also trying to form norms of sustainable development, human rights, where the climate agenda fits quite well in, in there. And I think um, I was thinking of having such a high profile on, on international climate cooperation. I was wondering if uh, Yulinia could outline a bit how is the EU working on climate security, like climate diplomacy. Is it the same kind of leadership or is it divided? I mean, we could see, of course, climate change is it's one, one concept, one question, one issue, but you still you have the cooperation part and you have the security part, which is a bit divided still. Um, so I wonder how the EU is doing on this. That's a very good question. Of course, uh, the union is facing a lot of challenges at the moment. And I mean, that's also, <laughs> uh, to say the least, with Brexit and everything, uh, you can see it very, very clearly in the, in the Conference of Presidents meeting, I think. Everything is about keeping status quo right now. Don't challenge too much. Don't go with, don't make Poland upset. Don't make uh, Hungary more upset than they already are, and so on and so forth. 
I mean, I think, let me start off by, by because we're talking about adaptation and, and climate change. I think this mandate has really been the mandate for putting into place a lot of important legislation to meet the Paris Agreement, the goals in the Paris Agreement. Are we making progress? Yes, definitely. I mean, we're, we're, we're doing it. We're really, really uh, advancing, I would say. Is it enough? No. Nowhere near enough to, to stop, I mean, the immense of, of emissions that we have today. So I, I don't want to, you know, be too negative, but of course, so you can always see positive changes. I mean, we have Federica Mogherini. She's actually also uh, organizing a kind of a, a climate security uh, panel, a very high level one, but we're in line with the, with the, High uh, representative Federica Mogherini of the e EU, um, and I think th this is what I see, and, and I think it's super interesting how the EU is trying to uh, really tie the African leaders closer to the Union by offering them, for example, tuna fish quotas, which is of course extremely valuable. Uh, so uh, the, these high-level tuna meetings that I attend, which is fisheries—that's my my uh, nerd. Uh, uh, department right now, but you can really see how you're trying to, you know, bind the African leaders closer to the EU. For example, Libya has never had a tuna fishery. Now they've got a big quota. So on many, many levels, I, behind the closed doors, we're really, really trying to solve the problems. Um, but this week we have the EU ministers meeting on trying to solve the my the asylum system, I mean, the, the whole migration problem that we're facing, uh, we're not at all making any progress. And I'm seriously so worried that the situation is really about closing the borders, about shutting the rest of the world out. Uh, so that's where, where we're at. And I think that's extremely, so <laughs> the nationalization, but really the regionalization also of climate issues and migration issues and everything should just be kept out. I think when we see the effects of climate change, we know that this is not going to, it's not going to be possible to just shut everything out. So we really, really need to take measures, make the member states more accountable, make them prepared to really handle the effects of climate change. And that is one aspect is for sure people will have to move. So we talk about African horn in 2050. It's not going to be possible to live there anymore. I, I'm, I'm certain. So um, some leadership, but a lot of closing of borders, I would say. Um, we, of course, we can do so much within the EU that the, we have immense, immense possibilities. So we have the FTAs, uh, the free trade agreements. There we can upgrade all, everything from development to water to fisheries to gender equality. Uh, so that's what we need to push, development aid. I mean, is there any ha has there been any development aid going into supporting local fishing communities, for example? And that's why, you know, that's what we need to push for, really, really. Um, adaptation measures. So the Paris Agreement, I mean, some have called it a failed agreement because it doesn't at all, I would say, uh, ask the questions or uh, give us any answers on how to deal with adaptation. So it's really, uh, I mean, I don't want to be too fear-mongering, 
but I think in, if we don't see the problem, we can't solve it either. So we really have to face really, really the, the grave challenges and then put the measures after that. Um, yeah, I'll stop there. Yeah. Thank you. I think, yeah, it's, uh, it's very true and very interesting. And uh, I think uh, just to a bit recap the Paris Agreement, uh, it depends the perspective or your judgment on the Paris Agreement, I would say, depends very much on where you stand. You could look at this, as, as Linnea outlined here, as it's not enough. Uh, it's not going to, to save us from uh, uh, climate change. Uh, but the part where they have built in to ratchet up ambition over the years, that's something that looks more promising. And if you look at it from a more sort of multilateralistic perspective, it's a global agreement. It's the first global agreement um, on climate change ever. So that's also some kind of progress. But I share your well, pessimism <laughs> in one sense. No, but I mean, Gunilla, you have to understand me correctly. I, of course, the Paris Agreement was something that is uh, a tremendous success, mm. really. I yeah, mean, from, we from have to celebrate it. We have to, I mean, I think yeah. we did as yeah. well. Yeah. But uh, now I think we're on, a, on another uh, foot here. I mean, now we see that the challenges, we have to keep pushing, like yeah. the, the really important stuff that is still lacking. Yeah, and, and well, my, my reason for being a bit pessimistic is, I mean, I'm, I'm very optimistic that, and glad that we have this agreement in place. But what is needed now when we talk about the Paris Agreement, but also about the issues you have uh, addressed here, is uh, political will and leadership. And we talked about the EU as being a leader, not being a leader. And then, I mean, everyone needs to think about the US, of course. And about a year ago, the US uh, announced their intended withdrawal from the Paris Agreement. And um, I was just addressing the whole panel here with the question, what do you think that need implies for leadership yeah, in general? Thank you for asking, because I was going to respond one way or the other. Uh -huh. you, you talk about leadership or lack thereof. The U.S. has basically abandoned its position in terms of leadership on climate change. And I was going to point out that every member of the U.N. Security Council was a signatory to the Paris Accord. Now, of course, the U.S. is no longer a signatory to it and pulled out, which, which is tragedy. As somebody told me earlier, prior, right after the election, don't worry about what Trump says, look at what he does. Well, you better look at both, because he's doing what he said. And he started with the, with the Paris Accord and then, of course, followed on with JCPOA and TPP. Uh, my little organization has been studying all three of those issues for, for quite a while. And uh, on the climate business, it's, it's, it's not a near disaster, but, but this is a case where I think the EU really needs to stand up and, and hammer the U.S. on the particular on leadership on this particular issue. We're the number two, the U.S., number two emitter in the world. I mean, China's number one. We're not far behind. Uh, China signed it. If you've been to Beijing lately, last time I was there about 10 years ago, I mean, you, you can't breathe in Beijing. They know they have a problem. And I could talk about that for a while, but they're working on it. I'll put it that way. U.S. now has basically turned a blind eye to it, and it's, and it's a tragedy. Now, I understand the, the drawbacks of the Paris Accord in, in terms of mitigation and adaptation. But as I mentioned earlier, we know what causes climate change. We know it's CO2 in the air, and we, and we failed to do it with the Kyoto Agreement. Uh, at least we got agreement on this one, and it, it was difficult and it was hard, but there, there really wasn't money committed to it from the Paris Accord, which, according to my current president, that 
we were going to lose millions and spend billions of dollars on it, which was not true. Um, so, I mean, it's, from that perspective, it's a sad state of affairs in, in the United States now. That said, I'll, I'll give you one maybe note of optimism here, and that's at the political appointee level, sure, they've, they've cleansed the documents of the words climate change, but at the career government employee level, they still understand what it is and why it's there and what's causing it, and, and, and they aren't leaving in droves in most institutions. Some they have. The EPA has got some big problems. Uh, but the others, uh, State Department, DOD, your career folks are there and are staying there. They will be the plank holders for this. They will hold it through the next administration. It, it will, I think there's a little bit of optimism there. Yeah, um, I'm thinking about this. Uh, leadership and political will, these are tricky things to create. Um, obviously, political leaders respond to voters, and, and that's primarily what they respond to. So just convincing them with data at international conferences will certainly never be enough. It is when their people are feeling the stresses of it and are pushing their, their leaders to do something, that's when they will respond. Uh, the question is, if, if people aren't uh, themselves competent enough to judge what the problems are, actually are, because what we're seeing are just consequences of climate change. We're seeing migration, we're seeing uh, rising sea levels, and it's easy to blame something but climate change. And if, if, we, if political leaders join that movement, then we are in for a really scary time. Uh, so here I think political leaders will need to have some serious courage to, to call a spade a spade uh, and, and to really focus on what the challenges are and therefore what the, the real solutions will have to be rather than, than play a blame game uh, and, and, and respond to the wrong things and, and thereby trying to mitigate the consequences rather than, than do something else. Um, and I have a, another slight fear, and that is that once things are getting really bad, then climate change will be the perfect scapegoat, because you can't really do anything anyway. It's global, and it's huge, and everyone has to do something before we reach. I mean, we're doing so good in Sweden on, on, on climate policy, aren't we? So why we shouldn't do anything really before China and the US leads the way? And, and, and those kinds of arguments are equally dangerous, or just saying, or giving up, that this is beyond us anyway, small country, we, we, it's, it's, it's beyond our competence to deal with. And, and, and therefore, just climate change is, is so easy then to use, not to deal with any of the challenges we're, we're facing. So there, there are dual problems here, and I'm, I'm hoping for real courage uh, from our political leaders to go through both the, the mitigation, mitigation issues that will be, uh, some cases, I think, tough for any society to deal with if, we, if we're serious about this. Uh, but then also the adaptation that, that will be equally hard because that's a global one and, and we will have to share our wealth and resources for people who will be the ones first affected. Gunia, can I respond just quickly to what Robert says? You're spot on. You know, all politics is local and they're pandering to the base. You saw that with the election of our president. But I have sat down with a number of senators, Republican, Tea Party, uh, one from North Carolina, so you can figure out pretty quickly who it is, um, who, who, when we talked the message that, that we are talking here, he, he got it. Yeah. The problem was uh, he's got a balance between supporting his commander-in-chief, 
and supporting his base, whatever the base is. But here's the kicker in North Carolina. North Carolina is the number two state in the country in terms of solar, solar uh, energy. Now, you would think if you look at the geography of the United States that that would be Nevada or New Mexico or Arizona, California, where it's hot, desert, and all that. Uh, North Carolina is number two. And, and you think, well, why is that? Well, they're not, they, don't have, they don't have a lot of oil reserves. They don't have a lot of natural gas. Uh, so they need alternative energies, and they're going to solar. So my point to this is what's going to drive it here is people are going to start going to those industries, renewables, regardless. And, and they recognize that problem in North Carolina. And, and it is a swing state. And he's, he's edging that way. He cannot pander to the coal workers of West Virginia. They are not going to elect him to the Senate from North Carolina. Now, I'll give you an alternative example. Senator Inhofe in Oklahoma, who I've not sat down with, who walked on the floor of the Senate last year with two snowballs and said, this is climate change. And he, of course, mocking the fact that it was snowing. Uh, I'm not going to change him. Of course, one of the number one industry in his state is oil and gas. That's the way it is. But, but this will shift. Yeah. It will shift. Yeah. Now I'm getting into my positive uh, mood here. Switch. Let's see. <laughs> EU leadership. No, but I mean, Paris Agreement, we really have to talk about hope. I mean, leadership is about, you know, painting uh, a future that is likable, that everyone wants to, a world where everyone wants to live in. And I think actually, okay, this is today's EU, you know, EU bird, or how do you say it? But um, we, ha we are actually showing leadership. So we're in the final stages of negotiating our renewable energy directive, which we have clear targets for increasing renewable energy in, in, in the EU. Of course, now we found an, a, a lot of new problems, but still we're doing it. I mean, we're, we're actually t taking the steps and measures. Energy efficiency. I mean, that's, if, you're, if you're going to learn one climate word, <laughs> climate solution, it's energy efficiency. And it sounds ridiculous when you talk about it because uh, apparently Poland is, we're going to help Poland meet the, the uh, Paris Agreement by smart electronics, like uh, a vacuum cleaner that is, you know, much more energy efficient and a toaster that is much more energy efficient. It sounds ridiculous, but when you look at the figures, it's really, really, wow, striking. So, I mean, uh, I'm talking about effort sharing, how we will divide the responsibility of every country, member state taking this responsibility. Uh, for the first time, Lulu CF, where, uh, and that was a big, 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 big fight for the Swedes and for the Finns, because of, uh, for the first time, introducing what we do to our forests and how we see the forest as a carbon sink and counting that towards the Paris Agreement. I mean, a huge success from my point of view. But media doesn't report on successes. They report about problems. Uh, so ETS, that's of course how we will uh, totally uh, make the price of emissions more, I mean, accountable to what it actually costs to emit carbon dioxide. I mean, we, we are doing quite a lot. Let me just uh, say something about voters, because I think that's, that's the real threat <laughs> with, with brave politicians. Uh, I mean, I think the EU system is so interesting because we always have to create <coughs> majorities. So when you have politicians in the system, 
you, I mean, to get elected is not maybe always the traits you need to create the majority. <laughs> but that's a very, very interesting system that we're actually getting closer and closer to in Sweden as well. You can't be in your own little bubble. You really have to, you know, get the others on board. So that's, that's where we see progress. That's where we see hope. That's where we see real leadership taking place. Where I think the threat to that leadership and to that kind of pragmatic approach to create majorities is really the threat from right-wing parties in, in Europe. Um, so we, I, I don't know how to, because they, they just keep getting really, really much stronger, no matter what we do. Uh, I, I, that's maybe the next uh, real discussion that we have to do. What are we doing wrong in order to, uh, um, because those issues, those parties are really uh, reluctant to address climate change as well. So they, um, they blame everything on the migrants, but uh, right-wing parties, I mean really right-wing extremist parties, uh, look again for oil and coal to solve every problem, like a job-making machine. So, um, yeah. But I, I just need to follow up a bit on that note, because I was thinking when you said populist and right wings, I was thinking of uh, the Brexit and uh, what will happen with the EU uh, work on climate change. I mean, the UK has been a strong part in that within the EU. Uh, so what do you think will happen? I don't have a clear answer, of course, because everyone is wondering what is going to happen with Brexit. But let's be honest, uh, we'll have a kind of a Brexit, I think. But is it going to be... Uh, I mean, there are so many issues that needs to be solved that we will see a, trans I mean, a, a transition period for I, I don't know how many years. Uh, and I... My hope is that everything that is not on the real top of the agenda will just stay as it is until it sort of trickles up on the politi political agenda. Uh, there is just too much uh, going on. It can't be solved. I mean, we're March, to, I think it's March 2019 that they, Britain will leave. And I mean, we're still nowhere near a, a, a real, a real deal between the EU and Britain. So when you talk about with people in the corridors, they're like, no, it's not going to happen. But that's up to Theresa May, that's up to Boris Johnson and all of those guys over there. <laughs> but uh, I mean, when you, you do your counting, how are they going to manage? They, they don't have uh, any people to do, do the negotiations, even on to access the free trade agreements. So uh, yeah. Okay, thank you. And uh, well, I think it's time to open up to the audience. Uh, it's, a, it's a very important perspective you have provided, and I'm curious about questions. I see one here first. You could, uh, please state your name and affiliation. Well, thank you, uh, Mika Carlson. I work at the Royal Institute of Technology across the road, so thanks for your introductions here. I'm a bit surprised um, about what you're saying about the Paris Agreement. I've followed climate issues for more than three decades now since I've first heard about it. And to give you some uh, comments to why I think what the Paris Agreement is really the big breakthrough. 
It's the first time when politics is, cal is calibrated in any reasonable way with what scientists are saying mm. is needed in terms of temperature targets. Um, it moreover signaled a new geopolitical situation where not only uh, EU and US for the first time ever were on the same side, but also China and eventually uh, during the second week uh, India as well. It changed, and that's one of my key points here, it changed the narrative. Instead of portraying climate and economy as incompatible, it said, um, and, and the leaders of states and government said also in the beginning of the meeting, not in the 11th hours in Copenhagen, that there is a win-win relationship. We're losing, uh, just like in Beijing with dirty air, etc. So mm. there are co-benefits that are perhaps more valuable than the cost of mitigation. Uh, and it is indeed uh, the key engine now for developing climate policy. If you take the European Union, European Parliament, the member states here, it's the instrument that leaders around the world stick to when the president mm -hmm. in the US is saying, I'm abandoning this, if that will happen. I think that's just, just as, as unlikely as Brexit. But, and it has also undermined the whole scapegoat uh, argumentation, also among businesses, because businesses were there and were, in general, very positive. So from that background, saying it's not about what's happening in Paris, as you did, Rob, it seems to go a bit too far, even though I, I appreciated and understood an, a number of your, of your points. I think it's more instrumental and important for the narratives on the local level where politicians meet their voters, etc. Because there are some things that you could say before which are becoming really difficult now. And uh, not even the fact that you have said we're going to leave, well, bye-bye, was what the rest of the world said. That didn't happen in Copenhagen, didn't happen before. So if you want to compare it for example, it might be the Montreal Protocol for Depletion of the Ozone Layer, which was just the first among uh, in, in, in a row of protocols that actually sped up that work in, in the positive uh, spiral between politics, science, and business, etc. But I wanted to ask a question to Stephen. Uh, science denial, uh, climate science denial, is, is um, uh, a very difficult problem, in particular in the US. How, how do you, from, let's say, the military side, try to deal with that in different ways, even though you say we're outside of politics, but to what extent is it a problem? How difficult is it? And what's your take on it? I mean, George W. Bush also said this is not for real in the beginning, and everyone said we're going to have a fight on terror the coming decades, but four or five years later, also George W. Bush said this is for real. And we saw the same with Barroso in the European Union, we saw the same with uh, Fred Reinfeldt here in Sweden. So. Will the same thing happen with um, President Trump? Thank you. Uh, I think uh, let's, Linnea, start to answer the question and then Stephen on the Paris. I, I don't know if the, the, your first remark was uh, ah, mostly to Robert. Okay. No, but I mean, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm totally on your side. Uh, the Paris Agreement is a terrific, it's a groundbreaking piece of, of agreement, no doubt about it, but maybe not when it comes to ad adaptation. Do you agree? Or, I mean, do you think that it's still as strong as it could be on adaptation measures? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, the agreement would have been 
looking a bit different if I would have written it. But <laughs> it, it, it is the seed that will lead somewhere, as I see it. Just, I mean, the implementation, everything is still negotiated, how it will be implemented, etc., etc. Loss and damage, adaptation, a lot of issues. And of course, the measures are not there, but still, compared with the option, not having it. And Trump says what he says. Stephen. Uh, thanks for teeing up that softball. The, um, let me just say one thing about uh, Paris and uh, the Paris Accord and then COP, I think COP 23 is what's coming up next, that uh, there's been a pretty interesting reaction in the United States, California in particular, but somewhat in New York and others. The governors are saying, okay, Trump, you can pull out, but we're staying with it. And and they are. And, and, and I'm talked about this a little bit earlier, that when you get a state that's going to put in on its own emission standards under cars, the size of California now, California probably ranks, I don't know, what, fifth or sixth economy in the world when you line it up among with countries here. The auto industry takes notice, and, they're, and they want to sell cars there. So it becomes an economic question, and, and industry is going to understand that. Now, despite some of the failings of, of Trump to recognize what renewables have done, um, you can see that there are more people employed in renewable energy in the United States than the oil, gas, and nuclear industry combined. Now, you don't see him touting that figure. And part of the reason is, of course, uh, he goes after the some poor West Virginia coal miners that he's going to resurrect the coal industry, which will never happen. Uh, but that resonates with his base. But eventually, the economics are going to catch up to him, in my opinion, and that the state the cities and the counties get it more than he does. And you will see an economic, uh, and I'll give you one last example. There was a day last year in November when the entire state of Texas was powered by wind and solar. Now you didn't see Secretary, or then you don't see, he was governor of Texas, but now Secretary of Energy Perry touting that particular figure. But if you fly over Texas, it's got one of the largest wind fields in the world there that's powering the country. So this revolution's, the economics are gonna, gonna overcome that. Let me talk about the science here for a minute, and, I, and, I, and I'm fond of saying I'm not a scientist, I'm not. I'm an engineer by trade and an artilleryman by background. Uh, but I used to travel around with a guy named Admiral Dave Titley from Penn State University. He was the lead meteorologist for the Navy when he retired and a surface line officer, and now runs the uh, meteorology program at Penn State. And if you Google him or go on my website for americansecurityproject.org, you can come up with all the science you want. Uh, and he goes back 10,000 years. So, I mean, it's pretty specific. And, and, I, and I, that's part of the reason that we go around our country, the military guys, one, Titley's very reputable, but secondly, saying, here's, how, here's the money you're spending, U.S. public, taxpayer money, on your soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines as they're responding to catastrophic weather and to conflict worldwide that's caused by climate change. And you can put it in real terms. And it's interesting. I think that does resonate. And, and, and just, a, Linnea, just a quick response on the EU side, and this is from ASP's, uh, my perspective, that the EU gets it better than the U.S. does. I think the EU understands that. And, and the example I use, it's very simple, is pull up to the gas pump and see what a gallon of gas costs here. And I don't, I'm not sure what it is, a gallon equivalency in Sweden, but my guess is it's probably 7 or $6 to, gallon, to a gallon, maybe more. More. In the U.S., I, I pulled up last week, $2.50 per gallon. A and the oil industry has its grip on the government. 
we should be taxing our oil more to pay for infrastructure and, of course, to cover the emission standards, but we're not. But you, but that, you get that better here in the EU than we do there. So, um, and my last comment on this is the U.S. is clearly treaty-averse. It has been for years. We've been trying to approve the U.N. Convention on the Law of the Sea Treaty for 35 or 40 years. We're about the only signatory country that has not signed it. Uh, so what happens is we get an executive order signing the Paris Accord or JCPOA or TPP, and then you get an election, and if you flip parties and get somebody else, he pulls it out. And it was a cartoon in the Washington Post last week. Uh, I think it pointed to a European official said, I guess every four years we can count you're going to pull out on everything, and then another four years you're going to reverse yourself. Well, I'm not so sure that's the exact analogy to use, but it's somewhat appropriate given what, what has just happened to us. Um, but I think, I think we what's going to happen is the economics will take over and it's going to change. And on the science side, you know, it's proven. It's just a proven fact. And, and again, I'm, I can't get into the argument here, and I can, I can talk a little bit about it, but it, I'm not going to waste your time with it. Go after Titley's science, and you'll see it, and then we can prove what the cost is going to be on the military side. I hope that answers your question. Thank you. Uh, we have a question right behind here. Thank you. The, <clears throat> your presentations were really uh, informative and inspiring. I am Sanjida Shamsher. I work with uh, Swedwatch, an NGO. Uh, we look at, uh, we monitor businesses' impact on human rights and environmental protection. So my question is in line with what you are saying, the FTA. Uh, but uh, my question would be more specific to when, uh, whatever the political side or influence is, but there are many multinationals that are more and more becoming more and more influential than the politicians or many of the states especially many of the African or South Asian or uh, uh, South American states. So in those cases, uh, when Chinese companies or Indian companies are taking over lands and acres and acres and acres of lands, uh, with the climate impact and with more security concerns, how should the companies be, companies be pushed, especially the Chinese or Indians who are Chinese who are more like with the Paris Agreement and with other kind of, uh, because that how the impact would be more like when they calculate their economic growth and environmental uh, impacts or human rights impact, they do their cost and benefit, how should they be pushed more to tackle these security issues? Thank you. Yeah, Liliana, do you want to start? That's a really <laughs> great question. Let me talk a little bit what we do in fisheries. Uh, we have a, a legislation, an IUU legislation, that is uh, actually you know, targeting um, illegal fishing. So this is the only legislation we have on the EU level that can stop imports to the EU market. It's an amazing tool. Can you imagine to have an, if you, don't, if you don't raise your standards in your fishery sector, we will close the whole EU market. An export ban. There is nothing more, you know, there's no stronger tool than that. So I, uh, I'm not, I mean, you can talk about corporate responsibility, yada, yada. 
it's not going to really happen uh, because, I mean, we've, we see it inside of the union as well. I mean, if we don't threaten with leg legislation, nothing really happens. So there's a lot of, I mean, you, you have corporations maybe doing some really nice projects, but it's a very, very small part of their budget. So I really, <laughs> that's what I'm trying to talk with our commissioner, our commissioner Malmström, to really have this kind of idea on um, regulations try you know threatening countries basically to to raise their standards so the aim i would say is not obvious but the aim is of course to have at least to start a discussion with china because the big elephant in the room when you talk about eu is china and that we don't in in many areas don't even have a dialogue with with the chinese i mean it's we're really really struggling to have that dialogue uh, so since i have this uh, uh, and, and the Chinese are, are huge in fisheries as well. I mean, they, they send their, their vessels to, to the same waters, the same external waters that where the, the EU fleet is fishing. Uh, how we manage to get the European industry on board is, of course, due to this global competition that they're facing. So they are also concerned by the Chinese, by the huge Chinese investments in let's say, poorer countries on the African continent, uh, the Russian investments, the Taiwanese investments, the Korean investments, and there you go. So I think this regulation that we got on, in fisheries is targeting maybe countries that are, let's say, less important, but is a kind of a threat. So you have Thailand receiving a yellow card. That's, that's a severe threat. If you don't engage in a dialogue and start raising your environmental standards, you will get a, a red card. So you have, I mean, I'll, I can show you the list on how the EU has really raised standards, environmental standards, human rights standards in countries like Thailand. Uh, it, it, it's really amazing. And it's, it's also happening a little bit on the side. So it's really a bit of a, a closed uh, success, let's say a, a, a hidden success. I think this is the way to go. I really think it's, it's the way to push uh, a global, I mean, and then you can have all of these nice conferences, you can have nice dialogues with businesses, how they should uh, raise their standards. I think global competition is a, is a very, very nice tool then to say that EU has to show leadership, EU has to be the best, and in order to be the best, you have to clean up in front of your own door uh, in order to engage in, in dialogue with other major players. So that's, I, I think that's really, really impressive work. Robert. Yeah, what we're talking about here is changed behavior of companies in this case, uh, but also of people, obviously, and of politicians. And the question then is, how do you achieve that kind of change of mindset, of organizations, etc.? And and um, here I'm I'm I'm, I'm rather cynical, um, um, and I, I tend to start with the core purpose of an organization. So a mining, mining company, a Chinese mining company in Africa, their purpose is, is to make money. And that's always going to be their purpose. Their purpose will never be to address climate change or human rights, etc. And that means we have to work within that framework ourselves. Uh, and if their purpose is to make money, then they will have to see how they do that best uh, by being uh, climate conscious, for example. And what, so what we can do is to use sticks and carrots in order to change the numbers games and help them realize that actually you'll make even more money or you'll win the next election 
by focusing on climate change or, or, or environmental issues. It's a very instrumental approach that, that doesn't really appeal to the hearts and minds of, of people as much as, as, as more cynical sort of approaches. But I, I think it's the one that really works. And, and, and that's what I found working with, for example, uh, military organizations on gender issues, that they, they just won't listen until I say, this is going to help you win the next war. And then they'll <laughs> okay, you've got my attention for a few minutes at least, so go on. And, and this is the same thing here. So it's, it's about how, how, do you, how can you make as much money as possible? That's how you get the, the companies to change their behavior, not through corporate responsibility. It's not what they do. You know, one of the things that's revolutionizing Africa is cell phones. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. they've skipped a generation. You don't have to put the infrastructure in anymore. Uh, I, and people can communicate. And now the banking industry, there's no cash flow. It's all you know, That's one thing that I just find amazing here about Sweden. You're cash averse, which is wonderful. Uh, I mean, you, somebody told me you can use a card everywhere. You can. It's, it's, it's wonderful. That's happening in Africa. And my, my point to this is I think you're going to see technology in it. And it bends to your point, Robert, that... If companies can see they're going to make money out of this, and I'm, and I'm going to skip to renewables, that, okay, you can put up a solar panel and use it to pump a well in, Af in the middle of Africa, in the middle of nowhere. You don't have to have an oil-fired power plant or a diesel plant or, or a nuclear plant. The nuclear industry, by the way, has just priced themselves out of the market. The United States cost a couple of billion dollars to put one up. We haven't built a new one in years. Um, Shame on them. Now they're trying to work on small modular reactors. I won't go into the nukes because I know you, you didn't like to talk nukes either. But, but uh, I, I will mention this. The Boeing 777 Dreamliner is put together in Charleston, South Carolina. They import literally all the parts. They fly the fuselage into Charleston. The entire plant is, is solar powered. Now Boeing has not advertised that too much with the current administration because it's not too popular with them. But... But they're saving a ton of money, and they're, they're not being an emitter of CO2. So this is what's happening in the United States. You're seeing this over and over and over and over again. And I'll, I'll give you one last poignant example. The base I used to command, Paris Island, um, had an oil-fired power, oil power plant that we used. We usually got power off the grid in town, which was oil-fired or coal, worse. Uh, and we had our oil plant. Well, they're just now installing one of the largest solar panel plants in the country in Paris Island and they're using it to cover a parking lot which so it'd be covered in I mean it's that kind of innovation that's going to drive this in fact one last point on DOD they, they under the previous administration they have a, what's called the net zero program where all our bases and stations would produce more power than they would consume and the army and air force are well on the way to that navy and marines are a little bit behind but you go out to Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas has a huge solar array. They are contributing power back to the grid. And you can see the obvious advantages to this. So it's that kind of thinking that, that's going to get this to change. Thank you. Uh, we have a question up here. Yes, my name is uh, Lars Arnestam. Um, I want to ask about uh, climate change and threats to security. Uh, what will happen? As a consequence of climate change is that people will start to move because that's what people do when they can't support themselves in, in a place. So climate change will uh, create mass migration. 
and mass migration creates international friction and security threats. As we can see in Europe after 2015 and at the southern border of the United States. Um, uh, General Cheney has already mentioned two areas where we can expect such uh, migration, Bangladesh and uh, the Lake Chad area, which are pretty obvious, both of them, and where we can expect uh, migration in the number of tens of millions, perhaps even more in the case of Bangladesh. Both those areas are surrounded by other nations uh, who are, which are poor and which already have high population density. I can see no way how this kind of mass migration can be handled without some kind of global mechanism for distributing the migrants from the primary receiver in countries to those countries which uh, have the resources to, to handle them. Um, EU is right now trying to create such a, a mechanism at the EU level, which has not been very successful so far. Uh, what my question is, after all this uh, speech, can you see any awareness among international politicians of the need of such a global mechanism? Or are there any initiatives anywhere for trying to create such a mechanism in anticipation of what will come? Thank you. Would you like to start, Linnea? I'll hug you direct. Thanks for that question. I mean, um, so in, in January 2018, the whole European, I mean, with a very, very large majority, voted for this report on climate justice, where, I mean, the parliament now acknowledged the fact that migration will happen due to climate change. So I worked, I tried to get the majority for this report in, it took me two and a half years. So the, the issue was extremely sensitive. And of course, before the Paris Agreement, we couldn't even, we weren't even allowed to talk about migration or adaptation measures or anything because everyone was so extremely afraid that this would ruin the whole um, agreement. I think the situation is quite different now, actually. We have, for the first time, a gender action plan, which actually states that all actors in the Paris Agreement have to work with gender. So why is gender important? You have 60 to 80% of people in working with agriculture on the African continent, for example, being women, really have to invest heavily in those change makers on a local level. So I think the awareness is, we're, we're approaching a, a higher awareness. It's still, of course, a very, very infected discussion, I would say, and as I said before, the, uh, the main response right now from the member states is, of course, just ignore everything, ignore reality, ignore the effects of climate change. Let's just build a wall around ourselves so we can shut out these people. And that's why I'm saying so clearly, we have to take all of this into account right now. We have to start, you know, threading on that path and to take measures really now, right now. The member states really have to take the responsibility. There are 
it's not a, how do you say, not everybody is that reluctant. We have this coalition of the willing within the council. I think we have to strengthen them. And I think we should strengthen those forces as well in Sweden as well. Then, of course, the very, very important work that is going on, on on the UN level on the Global Compact of Migration, where I know the people who are struggling, really, really trying to get language in on climate refugees. So that's, there are some bright spots where, which we really need to enforce. I think your, your, uh, your note there on Bangladesh is very, I mean, it's happening already, right? I mean, one third of the people who are trying to get into Europe on the, on the, on the boats, on the plastic, you know, shuttles, plastic boats are from Bangladesh. So those are really, I mean, we, we, we can't call them legally, we can't call them climate refugees, but they are basically. So I think you're right. I think we need to, uh, to take this responsibility now. Um, so I, I think what we're seeing is a polarization. There is increased awareness in many political cir circles. And I do acknowledge the Paris Agreement is, is one of the uh, great successes of that increased understanding. Uh, but we're also seeing a, a really fierce counter movement mm -hmm. that is perhaps the, the strong trend of our time, that, that for the first time progressive values, climate and migration issues among them, are, on, are going down. Uh, and that is a global trend as well. And, and so, so we're seeing polarization nationally and globally on this issue. And if we isolate the migration issue, it just gets worse. Mm -hmm. And I, I agree completely with Stephen. I think this is, uh, what we have seen is absolutely nothing compared to what we will see. And I don't think there are walls high enough or ways to shut people out unless you, you really physically with weapons stop them at the border. And, and God help us if that, that will be the case. Uh, so what this will mean is a challenge not just to our welfare systems, but to the way we do politics. Because we've built our states around the idea of a nation, of a mutual political culture and quite often also ethnically based nation and that is that is history in a few decades and that means when it comes to mitigation or perhaps mostly adaptation we have to change the way we do policy and, and the way we think about the state as an actor and and how to run elections this will be incredibly challenging times for every society globally because they, they they're coming and and I just want us to, to respond the right way rather than the wrong. And, and then and let's not get more political than that, I guess. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, if there's any one thing I've taken from this last hour and a half, Linnea, you've, you've taught me a different de definition of adaptation. And I, my thought was, well, we build a seawall around Paris Island or we build the, the uh, docks higher in Norfolk or uh, we move troops off this island. No, no. We need to be talking migration as a case of, of adaptation, and, and that indeed is a huge security issue uh, worldwide. And talking about walls, I'm telling you, somebody who's manipulated the wall issue, I used to live five miles from the border of Mexico from 2006, 2011, and we have less illegal immigration in, in our country over the last year, year and a half than we've had in the last 10 years. But you wouldn't know that from statements from somebody. And we've tripled, the, we have more Border Patrol agents than we've ever had in our history today. 
again, you wouldn't know that. And, and it, it is a problem, but it's not the problem that it's built out to be in the United States. Now, that's I'm betraying my politics here a little bit, but uh, but then but you're precisely correct on on the adaptation side of the house. Both of you, thank you for those comments. Mm. Thank you. I think it's actually time to, <laughs> to, to wrap up. So uh, I would like to say thank you to the panelists for sharing your perspective on this very important topic. And uh, it's been very interesting to listen to this. And thank you for <laughs> sharing your Tuesday evening with us. Thank you. Bye. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews. <laughs>